Hi, I'm Will McHenry, the Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Yuval Weber, a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a Kennan Institute Fellow at the Daniel Morgan Graduate School, who is currently working on a manuscript entitled Designed to Fail, Patterns in Russian Economic Reform, 1861-2018. Yuval, welcome. Thank you for joining us for this Ponars podcast. Thanks for having me, Will. We've been hearing a lot about economic reform in Russia ahead of March's elections, but we've also been hearing that for a long time, we've also been hearing about this for a long time. Should we expect big reforms? Why or why not? Uh, it's a good question. And I think that what we should expect is the appearance of big reforms without the performance of big reforms. Um, the, the longer story of economic reform in Russia is that modernization comes, but only from above. And the times that the, the Russian state, and this is going back to the imperial Tsarist period as well as the Soviet period, uh, and now the post-Soviet period, is that the Russian state um, survives by uh, controlling uh, through the office of the president or the Tsar or the general secretary uh, the, the, the sources of economic opportunity, um, engaging in rents, uh, in sort of rent-seeking behavior or allowing for arbitrage opportunities. So that basically the economic opportunity within Russia goes through the central offices in Moscow itself. But every so often, uh, economic performance of Russia has fallen behind peer competitors. And at those times, the actual economic state of Russia becomes a security risk. So um, pre-World War I, uh, in the time of um, Pyotr Stolypin and Sergei Vite, uh, the, Russia was... Uh, afraid that it was going to fall behind Germany and the UK, and that if it did that, then it wouldn't be able to defend the western reaches of its empire. And that's at the moment that they turned to first Vita and then Stolypin in order to get the economy moving. And this was the, the first big industrialization, railroads, things of that nature, land reform, so forth. That came to an end when land redistribution in, in the provinces, you know, to the peasants, to the former serfs, that upset the uh, political the political economy of rural areas, and the previous elite uh, were, of course, the people who whose land was going to be redistributed, and essentially it came to an end uh, that way. Uh, Lenin, with new economic policy, uh, Kosygin, um, Alexei, so Vladimir Lenin, uh, new economic policy in the nineteen twenties after the. The revolution and the civil war and war communism, uh, the economy had come to an end. And so if the economy was going to come to an end and basically seized up because the peasants weren't producing anything, that was a clear security risk. If the economy falls apart in the early Soviet Union, they had just obviously been intervened against by uh, a coalition of outside forces. The Soviet Union could have been invaded another time. But once they got through that particular crisis, Stalin comes in, and the new economic policy. Uh, in the 1960s with Kosygin, uh, Alexei Kosygin, who was one of the top officials, and Yevsey Lieberman, they also had the idea, why don't we open up the economy to, um, to competition, to uh, market elements, but then oil money comes in and all the reforms are put to a shelf. Perestroika, people are probably more familiar with, and now we come to the current period. The current period is a situation in which the economy, the macro, 
you know, economic fundamentals are good because they solved a lot of the problems in the 2000s when the oil money was there. So besides for um, making sure that this, the president is the most important economic actor in the country, they really did pay off like a lot of debts. So in a sense, the macroeconomic fundamentals are good. The economy needs to be diversified away from natural resources. Um, but where the president gets his power is that he is the person and through his sort of networks, they're able to control economic opportunity within Russia itself. So at this point, Putin and his people have gone through, at this point, um, annexing a province from one of the neighbors, engaging in two wars of varying levels of, uh, uh, let's say, open knowledge. They've gone through um, two recessions in the past 10 years. They've gone through a currency collapse. They've gone through all these sorts of, you know, really bad news that are really difficult uh, to sort of sustain, but they've gone through it. So at this point, when you, you know, when the question is, should we expect big economic reforms? After what they've gone through over the last couple of years and have emerged basically as strong as before, the, the probably the motivation to essentially change the status quo is really low. But the necessity of appearing like they want to change the status quo is really high. And so what they're going to do over the next, um, the next couple months when Putin gets reelected is that Putin brought together several different reform uh, plans in front of him. One of those is by Alexei Kudrin, who's a former finance minister and known as the person who does basically macroeconomic um, orthodox reforms, small L liberal, you know, reduce the size of the state, raise the pension age, things of this nature. That's on one side. On the other side, Putin has brought together Sergei Glaziev and Boris Titov, who are advocating sort of big macroeconomic state intervention, throw as much money in the, uh, at the economy as possible. And in the middle, he's asked the uh, economic development minister, Maxima um, Reshkin, in order to come up with the status quo. And so what I anticipate is after the election, there's going to be some, let's say, surface reforms that look Kudrin-esque, essentially the stuff that the West loves and international markets love. Then that will cause some sort of uh, dissension within the ranks in terms of big business and the elites. And at that point, what Putin will then do is either go back to the status quo that we have now, or if things are bad enough, just throw money at specific problems. And that's how we'll see the uh, appearance of reform without any real reform. Fascinating. Putin will certainly be re-elected next month. Mm -hmm. But what happens in 2024? What are the options then when he's term limited? So in essence, Putin's got to make whatever sort of big decision long before 2024. Um, He may not announce it ahead of time. Uh, So at that point in, let's say, um, let's say, let's say six months ahead of 2024, that would put us in, you know, more or less September 2023. At that point, he's got several options. He can make a union state with Belarus. Um, they already have the, the, the legal foundation for, because they already have a customs union together. And, you, and Russians and Belarusians don't even have passport control between their own countries. So he can make some sort of reform to make a big country between those two countries and then become the president of that one. He could also essentially come up with some sort of um, maybe Lee Kuan Yew of South of uh, Singapore 
to have some sort of national governing council of which he is president for life. He can also um, change the constitution and do like uh, what um, Islam Karimov did in Uzbekistan a few times, which is to say, I was elected under the previous constitution, but now that we have a new constitution, my time in office resets. So those are, you know, the, the sort of constitutional changes that he can make. Um, they've already changed it once before, um, where they just changed the length of the, of the, um, was it the, the, the term of office yeah. from four to six years. So they could change it as many times as they need be. Uh, I don't imagine that he'll put in another placeholder because at that point, it really does become a banana republic. Russia's a great place. And the thing about uh, when it was President Medvedev is that everyone knew that he was the formal president, but that the informal president was, was Putin, who was the prime minister. Um, so if they were to do something where they're putting in someone else as the president, then I could also imagine Russia becoming a parliamentary republic of some sort. And all the real power goes to the office of the prime minister, and then they basically, Putin will be there as long as need be. Um, but those are all the, th those are all sort of like bad options. They're all bad in one way or another. Um, and what Putin needs to do, and the reason that Putin has his power, is that he is the person for whom all the people in the elite, when they look at him, they see, if not for him, I would be fighting every single other person at my level. So it's not, you know, in all these sorts of things that the Russian people are like incapable of democracy or that they're just like overjoyed to vote for Putin, you know, time and time again. I don't think, you know, any one group of people or one nation of people is incapable of anything. But what is true, and I think what Putin, his real genius is, is that he looked back into Russian history and have seen every time that there hasn't been a single strong leader, it's not that the people and the, the, the government fight each other. It's that the elites fight each other. And he's the person who adjudicates commercial disputes, personal disputes, economic disputes, and by taking effectively political disputes off the table. And so the thing that Putin knows is the moment that he acknowledges that the end is near, all the people in the elite will basically look at him and say, you know, for the past 18, 20, 22 years, however long it's been, if I had a problem, effectively he's the person who's going to solve it. And when he solves my problem, like, you know, for instance, me and you will, we have a problem, we take to Putin, and he rules in your favor. You know, it's unfortunate. But I also know that Putin will take my loss in regard the next time that I have an issue. So by being this person who can adjudicate between different factions, different individuals, different power centers, he is the central node of every network. And that, and the way that people believe that without him, they'd all be at each other's throats, that's the critical aspect. That's the service that he fundamentally provides to the Russian elite, not the Russian people. We recently had Zhenya Sobchak here in Washington, and it's unclear how serious her candidacy is. It seems uh, like a strange, almost quixotic attempt to become president. What are your thoughts on her political endgame? And how does she also compare to Alexei Navalny, for instance? Yeah, so um, both uh, Ksenia Sobchak and Alexei Navalny 
are both aware that neither of them will become president uh, next month, um, nor will any other uh, candidate for that. But both of them have very specific goals for 2024. And, you know, we could say that Sobchak, when she was here, you know, seemed odd because there's the, the custom of Russian presidential candidates going abroad during a campaign hasn't yet been done. I, I would imagine she's probably the first. And in that sense, both in the uh, the public talks as well as uh, private talks that uh, that I was I was party to, she said that the reason that she came to Washington and sort of like what her sort of vision was, is that she wanted to break the phobia of anti-Americanism within Russian politics. She wanted to demonstrate her foreign policy bona fides to her own voters, to say that she's a serious person, that she can you know meet with foreigners in their countries. And that she also wanted to suggest that she's the only person who can reset relations with the United States. Now, of course, the criticism of her is anyone who's allowed to go to the United States who's involved in politics either has implicit or explicit approval. And the reason that she hasn't been taken very seriously is that it doesn't take too cynical of a person to look at her candidacy and think she's there in order to take the how to put it, to take the thunder away from Navalny by being a liberal opposition candidate who comes from outside the system, but is completely, you know, non-confrontational to Putin. And that she's there to just bring the pizzazz and deflect attention away from him. And it was interesting when she was here in Washington, when people really asked her substantive questions besides the, you know, the celebrity type questions, you know, what when people asked her, what do you think uh, Putin's endgame is? Not her own, not why are you running, not essentially what do you think about yourself? But what she was very clear, and this is like a question that I asked, is she talked about Putin not as a person who is there forever, but as a person who is effectively afraid of his own demise. And that she said something to the effect of, Putin has been there for 18 years and he's going to be there for a few more. He and all the people around him have been in power, you know, almost two decades and it'll be almost a quarter century by the time the next, the next uh, term is done. They've collected a lot of money and they don't have too many friends across the world. So how can they leave power? And so what she made a very, you know, in her public remarks, she made a very clear distinction between herself and Navalny by saying that Navalny is a person um, who criticizes Putin from the left. And this, I'm not, uh, she didn't say this, but Navalny's um, election manifesto calls for lustrating, like literally arresting officials, putting them in prison, expropriating their wealth, reducing the actual size and number of the elites, essentially doing to the contemporary Russian elite what Lenin wanted to do to the old Tsarist elite. That is a very scary thing. For Putin and the people around him, if Navalny has this left-wing populist critique, that means he's coming for them. Sobchak is making her critique of Putin and the, and the current government from the right. And she has explicitly said in public numerous times, Putin is afraid of ending up like Khodorkovsky, 
And if that's the case, then he needs to be assured that he and the people around him are not going to be arrested, they're not going to be executed, and their property is safe. And then when you think, how did Putin get into power himself? That he was a guy who proved himself trustworthy at higher and higher levels of essentially power and responsibility. And his first decree was protecting Yeltsin and Yeltsin's quote-unquote family from arrest, execution, expropriation. And what I think Nav- what I think Navalny's game plan is, is to stir up populist anger against uh, Putin and all of his people for the next six years. And what I think Sobchak's plan is for the next six years to say that she's against Putin, but that Putin the person is not so important, so as long as he leaves, you know, we don't need to bother with him. We just need to put a, you know, clean break with the past and move gloriously into the future. And I think the next six years, if she gets back on TV, does a political party, that she's going to be trying out that in, you know, September 2023, that she gets to be the next prime minister in the same way that Putin was the prime minister of Yeltsin. Fascinating, Yuval. Thank you again for joining us for this Bonars podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Will. Thanks.